he's going to talk about a few sugiot that is that 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 is going to kind of you know tease out this idea of how um in his view zionism is actually uh, preventing the the gula and the other thing i wanted to point out and this this is something that we touched on a little bit earlier that where i think cook and Teitelbaum are actually speaking the same language that from a from a from a traditional perspective or from a theological perspective or i'm not exactly sure what language to use um the the idea for for religious jews I, religious jews is a strange term i know but for um the Shlomea Munat Israel, Zionism could either be messianic or anti-messianic. Like it can't be neutral. The very notion of Zionism as not being a messianic um, movement, for, you know, which which is you know, in a certain sense, is secular Zionism and labor Zionism, right? They're not really interested per se in the notion of messianism. From a perspective of the tradition, that's really impossible. It's really one or the other. So in a certain sense, from the perspective of, of, of the tradition, I think, you're either a Cookian or you're a, you're a title Baumian. Like, you, it's one way or the other. It can't be, oh, this is really, you know, this is neither this nor that, right? Because history is always just moving in one direction. And I think, you know, Cook and everyone around him and title Baum and everyone around him all basically assume that we're living in Ikvita Mashiach. We're living in the end time. Right now, whether the Shoah itself was the final act which kind of affirmed that, or whether we thought about that before, and there's all kinds of different kind of calculations that were made in terms of that. But I think that um, that that's true. Now, you know, Eliana brings up the question of Rhinus. Yes, in the question of Rhinus, it's not it's not openly he's he certainly didn't he wasn't openly messianic, but even Rhinus is really kind of drawing from from Kalisker and and Alkali who really did think in messianic terms it wasn't so bolate for for Rhinus but and Zionism was much more practical but nonetheless you even see in Rhinus that there is a sense that this movement is somehow um a sign of the messianic is is part of the disagreement what the purpose of Torah and human beings in the material world is? Is the material world the place for humans to learn Torah and wait for uh, salvation? Or is it a place for humans to apply Torah? And it seems that's a fundamental difference between Cook and and, and Rebbe. Yes. Yes, but but as 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 Teitelbaum is going to say, I, if we get to it tonight, that it it really depends upon how you understand Torah. So Teitelbaum would say, yes, of course, Torah requires its application too, but the application of Torah for Teitelbaum is really just Torah and mitzvot. You just do Torah and mitzvot, and you wait in exile until until the Messiah comes. That the application of Torah is never for Teitelbaum to take the agency of redemption into one, one's, own, one own, one's own hand. And I think even for Cook, it's a more complicated, it's more, I, th- I even think for Avram Yitzchak Cook, it's a more complicated story than we normally think. Remember, as I said earlier, I think in the first class, Cook never joined the Zionist movement. He never joined Mizrahi. He never joined any movement 
that was Zionist. In fact, he founded his own movement, Degel Yerushalayim, which was in certain sense an opposition to the existing Zionist movement. So, you know, Cook obviously was a Zionist, but his relationship with the Zionist movement was much more, I think, complicated um, than we often think. Now, of course, if, if we were to ask if Torah is a blueprint for how people should build societies in the material world and so forth, he would say yes, though, and yes. Teitelbaum would say no, right? No, Teitelbaum would say yes within, again, but for him, the idea of Torah and mitzvot is, and we're getting, there's an interesting midrash that he quotes about this, the Torah and mitzvot are the ways in which Jews construct the world they live in and remain bound to their fidelity to the covenant that will eventually bring salvation, right, for, for title belt, right? To, 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 it's, it's almost like, you know, when you learn a language, right, moving from the passive to the active, right, where, where, you know, you learn a language and you learn how to read the language and you can then translate it, but then there's some movement in the brain when you go from a place of being able to understand and read to be able to speak. Right? So it's that move from the passive to the active. For Teitelbaum, you never transition to the active in the, on the, messian, in the messianic register. And that's kind of precisely what Cook is, is suggesting. Um, so if you could bring up Marcus, bring up uh, Davchet. Can you do that? And we'll go through. And, and here we're gonna get, we're gonna kind of get into, into, the, way, into the weeds in a more that, um, in a ways that we didn't before. So I want to start with the paragraph that says Vezeburur, which is the paragraph on the left, left, go down, right, exactly, right where the arrow is. So he's, he's now, he now has introduced Zionism. So he says as follows, Vezeburur, this is clear. Ki oto harayon hamatoav hu mitakev hamakev guulatenu uftut nafshenu. That this idea, the very idea of Zionism, the notion, it's interesting that he says harayon, right? It's not even the act of it, it's the idea of it, is preventing redemption. So it's anti-Messianic. Ka'asher haveti bifnim divrei midrash yalkut parshat bo, remez kuftzadi aleph, as I will explain inside what he means bifnim, he means in the essay itself. Remember, this is just the introduction. So as I develop later on the words of the Midrash in Yalkut Shmoni on the verse lachem lemishmeret, that verse is Exodus 12, 16, and it's talking about, um, the verse says, says, it's talking about putting the, the blood of the goat on the doorpost, waiting so that, that God will know the Jew, God will know the Israelite families. So this will be a protection for you when the death, when the plague of the firstborn comes. That's the verse. And then the Midrash in Yal Kutshmoni says, Mi memadai, who redeemed you from media? Mordechai ve'ester, talking about the Purim story, which is going to coming up in a few weeks. Mi paralachem yavan, who saved you from Greece? B'nei Chashmonaim, the Hasmoneans in the um, in the Maccabees in the in the Maccabean revolt. 
Mi lechem malchut revi'it, who will save you from this last, for, the fourth, final phase of exile? Natrona. So what is a Natrona? The Natrona is the avenger, meaning that God will come as an avenger against the, um, against the, uh, the uh, kind of the evil oppressors and will redeem you. So then it, the, the, this is all, this is all Yalkut Shmoni. This is not title bound. And then the Midrash says, This will be for you a protection. Don't eat from the Paschal sacrifice when it's raw, right? The, 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 the mitzvah of the Paschal sacrifice, it has to be eaten when it's, when it's roasted, when it's burnt, right? Like, you know, double well done. That's how the Paschal sacrifice has to be eaten. Don't desire it when it's still in a in a in an unfinished state. Upirosham Ra'anan is a super commentary to the Magen Avram on the Shulchan Aruch. Natrona, what is who is this avenger that's going to come and redeem the Israelites? Again, this is still the Midrash, that the Israelites have to protect and they have to wait. Don't, don't desire, don't, don't ask to eat the Paschal sacrifice before it is fully cooked. Klomar she'eno salui kol It's not sufficiently roasted. This is why your mother-in-law likes burnt meat, okay? <laughs> um, and so, 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 so that's the midrash. That's the quote to the midrash, right? In other words, what's the whole, what's the whole avoda of the of redemption from Egypt? waiting for the proper time to leave. The Paschal lamb and eating it in a burnt state is a symbol of waiting until the meat is fully cooked before you partake of it. That's what the Yalkoshimoni says. So Teitelbaum comments, Umavarbazet, so we can see from this, that we don't have really the schut, I'm not sure exactly sure, it's not really merit, but ability after we go out from exile, but rather the avoda, what we have to do is to wait. Not to eat of the Paschal lamb before it is sufficiently burnt. And not it's interesting language. Not to gain pleasure out of this state of redemption that comes kodem hazman before its proper time. The imkin kol otam lokhim chevel behem umemshaltam vaochlim imahem mahatoevahan asit neged hasara shel al tochlumi menuna. Therefore, he's, he's extending it. Everybody who takes upon themselves, and he says, and in this kind of political reality, 
and ochlimimahem, and they eat with them. That who is the imahem with the memshala? And he's here. He's talking about the state, obviously. From this abomination, which is an abomination because it's like eating the raw meat of the paschal lamb, as opposed to waiting for it to be tzalui. Which is against the prohibition of waiting for the paschal sacrifice to be burned. Those people that do that are, in a sense, preventing the redemption. And that's why I think the language of anti-Messianic is even better than false messianic. I also later on in the essay bring the Gemara in 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 Sanhedrin in on page uh, ninety eight, and that's that's all that long sugya about about Mashiach. Ain ben David ba Israel. That the Gemara says the generation of David, this messianic generation of uh, the messianic generation does not appear until the Malchut Halazu Yisrael is, is, it, is, is uh, destroyed. I'll, I'll get to it in a second, Marcus. Upirish Rashi, shum Yisrael, that this Malchut Rasha, this evil empire, should have no jurisdiction on Israel. Afilu shiltanot kala v'dala, even though it's not particularly strong. That before the Messiah comes, this political reality has to be destroyed. It can't happen in any other way. This is a, prevents the, uh, the redemption. So Marcus, what do you say? It's a bit radical to suggest that there's no way to make the Geula come faster. Right. All we do is wait. No. Well, it's not completely true because Tzadikam would say, "Yes, you can make the Geula come faster by doing Torah and Mitzvot. That is the way to make the Geula faster." Right. Now, what he's basically saying, right, and this goes different than what Peter was saying, but what he, what I think Tzadikam is saying, is remember Zionism for him is secular. Right. It's people that have already abandoned Torah and Mitzvot. The whole project. The whole Zionist project is a secular project, right? Religious Zionism, the way we understand it today, didn't really exist in the 1950s. So for him, in a certain sense, the Zionists are trading Torah and mitzvot for human agency to bring about the redemption. And that, in a certain sense, in a way, he's pitting there's Torah and mitzvot and there's Zionism. Now, Cook comes along and actually tries to create the shiluv between them. And religious Zionism is basically, it's like, you know, Torah Eretz Yisrael, right? That it's trying to bring together these two things. Teitelbaum would say, it's like, you know, it's like eating kosher meat with treif meat. Like it's still treif, right? Even though you're also eating kosher meat, the, 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 the kosher meat doesn't, isn't mevatel the treif meat. That's that. That's the way Tidalbaum would see it. Um, 
And, you know, as, as I said, I think the first class, right, he brings in the Rambam's letter. Um, uh, yes, exactly, Max, exactly. I want to get to that in a moment, right? That, um, that the Rambam, he brings the Rambam's letter to the Jews of Yemen a lot. That's a very big text for him. But before we get there, you know, Max's point I do think that there's a way to read Cook that, that secular Zionism, in a certain sense, or Zionism is a mitzvah Baba Avera. Dafka, right? I mean, there's a way in which it is a commandment that comes about through a transgression. And Cook has an entire metaphysical construct which justifies that. So there is something that is you know, since mitzvah hababa avera is the language that Sholem uses to describe Sabbateanism, and also Sabbateans use that language too, that for Sabbatite Svi, that the mitzvah itself of Geula comes about through the transgression. Now, the, the sugya of mitzvah hababa avera is a sugya about a stolen lulav. Right in the third parak of Tractate Sukkot, can you use a stolen lulav for the mitzvah? And the Gemara says, "Ain ha mitzvah baba avera," that you can't perform a mitzvah through a transgression. Right? The Sabbateans turn that around and say, "Yes, a yesh mitzvah baba avera." And there's an extent to which Cook is really making that argument. Right? That it it in a sense the mitzvah of geula can only happen through the Avera of Zionism for Cook, right? And he has a whole reason why he talks about an Arpale Torah in other places. So yeah, I think Max's point is, is actually right. Um, and so in a way, Cook would say, a mitzvah baba Avera, and, and Teitelbaum would say, ain mitzvah baba Avera, right? It's just, just not, you, you can't do it. It doesn't work. The mitzvah itself doesn't, doesn't function as a mitzvah. So he brings in the Rambam's letter to the Jews of Yemen. And what's so important for, for, for Teitelbaum about this letter is it's really all a letter about Mashiach. Because as you, as you remember, for those that know of the letter, or if you don't, I'll tell you for the first time, the Jews of Yemen, the Jews of Yemen wrote to Maimonides for advice because there was a false messiah that was trying to, a false messiah who was a Muslim that was trying to convert the Jews to Islam. And he was, this, this Messiah was apparently doing all of these wonders and miracles and all of these things. And they were basically, look, they, they wrote to Maimonides and asked him about what they, what they should do. So Maimonides has a couple of very interesting things in that letter, but two things are worth mentioning. The first is he basically talks about how the idea of performing miracles and wonders is not a sign of the person being the true Messiah. And the second thing, which is not re relevant to us, but is worth bringing up, is that Maimonides said one does not, one is not required to die a martyr rather than convert to Islam. Because Islam is monotheism and not idolatry. So one, if need be, if one's life is in danger, one can convert to Islam and not feel that they would have to martyr, martyr themselves rather than convert, which is an interesting story because there's a whole controversy about whether Maimonides himself, when he was younger, converted to Islam, right? And um, um, uh, Joel Kramer's book, 
biography of Maimonides really kind of tries to settle the settle that idea and say that it's very likely that Maimonides did live as a Muslim for a certain period of time in Egypt. Anyway, it's another story. Um, as a whole scholarly, as a whole you know scholarly debate about whether that's true or not. In any case. Um, we have to wait. This is what Maimonides writes. We have to wait for mercy from heaven in order that this malchut is destroyed. From God. Jews don't try to destroy this evil empire. The evil empire has to be destroyed by God. This is what Maimonides says. Velo al umot, and not by other nations. Ki im al umot Israel kamuvan. If the other nations wage war against this evil empire, against the Jews, this would create great danger for Israel. Vashem Israel. God should be, has show mercy on Israel. Um, but we should not gain benefit or pleasure from this empire um, because that itself will prevent the Biasa Mashiach. Now, what he's doing here is kind of an interesting turn. The Gemara, when it talks about Malchut there, is not talking about a Jewish Malchut, obviously. It's talking about another empire that's trying to destroy the Jews. He's now kind of, he's playing with it and saying, oh, that the empire itself may be actually the Zionist entity, the Jewish empire. That is, it, it's, its destructiveness is that it's, it's put, pulling Jews away from Torah and Mitzvah. That's how we understand it. Um, I'm not sure if he's talking about yeshiva students taking funds from the government. I think more generally, he's talking about any hana'ah from, the, from this malchut ra'ah is, is preventing the Messiah. Now, obviously taking money from the government, and that's why Teitelbaum goes various times to Israel through the 1960s in order to give away money that he raises in America to the yeshivot in the Haredi world so that they wouldn't take money from the government. But... Some of the some of the kind of followers of Taliban went even further and didn't ride the buses and had their own generators and didn't use the, the electricity of the of, of, of the Memshala. So, you know, I don't think that exists anymore, but there was a time when they tried to minimize their their engagement. Now, of course, uh, uh, you know, as I, as my, my friend Nahami said, it, you know, you can't you can't uphold this in real in the real world. You can't uphold this ideology, the separation of the real world. Okay. Um, um, so now, now, now I want I, I, this. This next thing is actually really important because it's addressing, I think, something that he acknowledges, and that is he acknowledges the strong, the strong push, and, and difficulty of implementing this kind of radical way of thinking. Since redemption require is one of the criteria of redemption is to resist this memshala, this political entity. 
לכן מתגבר היצהרע והסמכמם, השטן, כל כך להמשיך את כל העולם לרעיון פיגול זה. Because this is the very, because resistance is the condition of redemption, the Yetzirah and the powers of evil will להמשיך את כל העולם לרעיון פיגול זה. It's so interesting, this language will draw the entire world to this damaged idea. So he's not only speaking about the Jews here, and I think this is part of the emphasis of writing for Moshe, and even more so Alagu Ulevala Tamura. It's not only that he feels that the Jews are being compelled. He sees that the world is being convinced that this is a legitimate idea. And this, for his, from, his purpose, from his perspective, is the result of the Yetzirahara that in uh, in a collective sense, not in a personal sense, as things become more, as things become closer to the end, the Yetzirahara becomes more powerful. Now, this again, this is a, this is a classic rabbinic idea. It also is an idea that appears in the book of Daniel. It appears in medieval Christianity, notion of the Antichrist. And I think this is the way he wants to portray Zionism in Al-Ghul of Al-Tamur. But look at the sugya that he, that he draws us into. It's a pirish on the Mishnah. The Tosfot Yom Tov in Mesechet Avot, Perk Hei, Kol HaMishnah Dechoshev Bahadei Nisim Shinah Bebet HaMikdash. The Mishnah, the Perakei in, in Pirkei Avot, um, this is this Mishnah, the Mishnah he's talking about is Mishnah Hay, but the whole Perak is really about, um, you know, the, the notion of 10. There were 10 utterances that created the world. There were 10 generations from Adam Ad Noach. There were 10 Nisya Nochna Suav Ramavinu. There were 10, um, you know, tests of Abraham. And then it also says that there were 10 miracles that were done to, to our ancestors in the Beit HaMikdash. Right, Okay, one of them is that on the night of Yom Kippur, like, you know, the night of Kol Nidre, so the Kohen Gadol has to go in on, on Yom Kippur and bring the sacrifice of the two goats, right? But the Yom, to atone for Israel. The problem is, what if the Kohen Gadol has a seminal omission that night and is Tameh and can't perform, this, can't, can't perform the sacrifices? Then the entire thing doesn't happen, right? Israel is not, Israel's sins are not atoned. So one of the ten, this is the Mishnah, one of the ten miracles in the Beit HaMikdash was that the Kohen Gadol never saw a seminal omission the night of, the, the eve of Yom Kippur. Right, so that he would be pure in order to be able to perform the right. So Taidobam says on that the Tosfos Yom Tov makes an interesting comment. Um, and it goes as follows Yeshmi Shahakshev. So Shahakshev, there are those that ask, Valami Yarelo Keri. How, why would you think that he would have a seminal omission that night? For an entire week, he's being prepared for this. 
He's in a pure state the entire day. And the entire night, the, um, the, the, the elders kept him awake so that he wouldn't sleep and perhaps have this, you know, this nocturnal emission. So in a certain sense, they're saying, how could it be that it's a, why is it a miracle that he didn't have this nocturnal emission? The entire preparation was such that he wouldn't have it. Vachuva, the answer that's given, ki yetzer tov oyovim. The yetzer and the yetzer tov are, are always in a state of constant ca- conflict like two enemies. Ukeshe'achad mehem karov liyot menutzach and when one side stands to be victorious, and that's going to be the atonement of the Jews on Yom Kippur, so the other side, the side of evil, sees, says, oh, I'm done, right? I mean, this is going to be the end of me, right? Because Israel is going to be atoned for their sins, and I'm not going to be able to be mekatreig, I'm not going to be able to, to attempt to, to, to hold them accountable. So that's the end of the of the of the of the of the Yom Tov. Meaning to say, under normal circumstances, of course, there's no way for the Kohen Gadol to have a nocturnal emission. Look at all the preparation that was done. But as a result of that, the Yetzahara becomes so strong because it realizes that it's involved, that it's engaged in a battle that it's about to lose. So it's like a you know a cornered animal. Right? And that's why the Tosfot Yom Tov says the, 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 the Kohen Gadol is closer to having a nocturnal emission on, Erev Yom Kippur, on the eve of Yom Kippur than any other day of the year, even with all the preparations. The Imkain. Kol Shekain Bezesha Anachnu Omdim Kodem Hagula. We are standing on the precipice of redemption. And we know that once redemption comes, the Yetzahara and the forces of evil are completely eradicated, such that as if they never existed. The Kamosha Viu Gambatosvos Roshishana Dav Tadzayan Amudbet We'll get to this from from um, from the Gemara and Rosh Hashanah. But so, so what he's basically saying is, and this is why I just want to stop here and go back to the top of the of the of this keta where he says, Oh no, they're not there. Um, where he says uh, the entire world. Where is that? Let's see. Remember, he said a, a, a little bit below where the entire world is being drawn into this. So he sees it. It's very interesting. He sees he sees this kind of battle against Zionism in a global perspective. This is not simply about the Jews for him, because about Mashiach, right? So Mashiach is a global thing. It's not just about it's not just about Eretz Israel. It's not just about the Jews. It's about the world. So in a certain sense, he's saying like. We, the world is in, in, in a place like, it's like we, the entire world is like the Kohen Gadol on the eve of Yom Kippur, right? Which is right on the precipice of Geula. 
the result of that is that the Yetzahara was never as strong as it is at this moment. And this becomes the great challenge for him. That the resistance seems irrational, the resistance seems unattainable, the resistance seems unreasonable, the resistance seems simply insane, actually, right? And that's because for him, in a certain sense, it's like all of the all of the stops are taken out, and the Yetzahara is going to push and create conditions that make it look like the like itself. It is the good thing. That's how he's painting the picture. Now, this is you know, in a certain way, it's very interesting, right? Because this this is a picture that, in a sense, goes back to. Or much earlier ancient texts that have this notion of the power of evil, the power of, you know, Samael, that's always kind of interjecting into that, that realm. So he really, in a certain sense, you know, there's a way in which this is a, this is a kind of a, kind of a, a, a demonological approach, right? This is, is what this, this predates the Zohar. Or is the Zohar the oldest? Oh no, no. This is we're talking way before. We're talking before that. We're talking Second Temple stuff. I mean, yeah. all of that. That that the the power, the power of evil, the power of demons, the power of 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 powers of darkness that played such a strong role in ancient Israel. This is kind of what he's absorbing. Not because he's reading those texts. He's not reading those texts. So you're right. He's absorbing it from the Zohar and he's absorbing it from other places. But they certainly extend further back than that. So he he brings in the case of the Kohen Gadol. Now he brings in another example from the Gemara in Rosh Hashanah. It's actually a Tosfot in Rosh Hashanah. And I want to read you the Tosfot because he doesn't quote it exactly right. The Tosfot reads, you know, there's a there's a there's a story, there's a, a keta in the Gemara that says that we blow the shofar satan to confuse Satan. Right. So that he doesn't really know what's going on. He doesn't know whether we're being judged. He doesn't know whether we're being, you know, forgiven and so on. So the the Tosfot reads, and he's only uh, he only he only I, I want to read the whole thing because he only gives us the last piece of it. It's the Tosfos reads, Kadela Arbevata Satan. So we blow the shofar in order to confuse the Satan. Pirish Ba'aruch will be baby Bushalmi. So the Aruch is that's brought in the Yashalmi says, Bella Hamavet Lanetzach. There's a verse that says that death will be destroyed forever. That in the messianic time, right? Death will be destroyed forever. The Kativ Hayabayoma who Yitkaba Shofar, Yitakaba Shofar Gadol. And in that day, the great shofar, not the shofar of Hashanah, but Shofar Gadol, the great shofar, the redemptive shofar will sound. Kajma Kalshipura. So Satan hears the shofar Zimnachada. It's one time. Bahil Velo Bahil. So kind of Satan gets a little bit. He's a little bit kind of doesn't know what's going on. Bahil velo bahil. He gets a little bit anxious, but not too much. Kachma tanain. He hears it a second time. Amar vaday zehu shipura diyitka b'shofar gadol. This must be the real deal. This must be the real shofar. 
So he gets so freaked out because, you know, if the great shofar is actually going to blow, that's his, that's his end. So he gets so freaked out that this is the end time that he forgets to actually try to, um, try to uh, work against Israel. That's what that Tosfo says about what does it mean, Satan. So, with, you know, because the, he's asking, like, why should the Satan be so confused by the shofar? And the Tosfeld said, because he thinks it's really the shofar gadol. He thinks it's the end of his life. And therefore, he gets so confused and so absorbed with his own issue that he forgets about Israel completely. And this is, the, this is what Teitelbaum is suggesting as follows. When, uh, when he quotes that Tosfos, so, even though the, the Tosfil says that the Satan gets confused, but what, what Heidelbaum says from the language is Mata Zimna de Satan Lihitbala, that Satan is now afraid of being destroyed, for sure Mithazik Bekolminehit Amtsut Neget Kole Inyanimetagula. He's gonna do everything he can at this point to prevent the Gula. But Srikin Nisei Nisim Lihit Natselimenu and great miracles are gonna be required because, because he's at his most formidable place. Much greater than the miracle of the Kohen Godot not having an external mission. Okay. So, therefore, in a certain sense, I mean, this is how far he's going, right? Satan establishes this Medina Hatzionut, Umalchut Aminut, this, 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 this heretical entity, Levatel at the Gula Vashemit Berkirachim Bimhe Rabia, Chishlan Uzman Gula Tenu, Dut Napshen. Okay. Now, obviously, this is a pretty, you know, pretty strident position. Um, Any thoughts? I, I don't understand the uh, parallel to the whole shofar situation. Like, was the establishment of the Jewish state supposed to be paralleled to a shofar? The establishment of the Jewish state is, um, no, I would say it differently, that the shofar gadol, in, in the, the way Teitelbaum is using the analogy, the shofar gadol is our time. You know, it's, it's the messianic time, right? And the reaction that the Satan has when he realizes that, oh, that sound, that shofar must be the shofar gadol, he's going to now do everything that he can to prevent it from happening. I think that's how Teitelbaum wants to understand it. Now, it doesn't actually completely work with the Tosfot, because the Tosfot is saying, when the Satan hears the great shofar, he'll be so confused that he'll forget to attack Israel. 
right? That's what the Tosfos is saying. But he's kind of like extrapolating from that by bringing it back to the to the Kohen Gadol. You see, you know, in a certain sense, you know, this is, you know, you can agree with the drash or not. But what a great darshan does is he doesn't actually just explain the Talmudic passage or the midrashic passage. He actually takes a variety of Talmudic passages and then layers them together, and draws out certain elements of each. So what he's doing with the Kohen Gadol is saying there's a great miracle that the Kohen Gadol doesn't have a nocturnal emission because the because the because the you know the the of Satan let's use the language of Satan because Satan knows that if he doesn't do something right away all the Jews are going to be atoned the next morning. So it's, that's why it's such a miracle that he never saw a nocturnal emission. And then he basically quotes the Gemara in Rosh Hashanah to say, um, uh, and then he quotes the Gemara in Rosh Hashanah to say that uh, when the Satan hears the Shofar Gadol, he becomes so, in a certain sense, the Gemara is saying he's confused, but Teitelbaum is saying, oh no, I'm going to take that and I'm going to tie that back to the, to the Kohen Gadol Gemara to say he becomes so cornered because he realizes that as time is ending, that he's going to do everything he can in order to prevent this from happening. That's how I, that's how I understand what he's saying. So it's like, in a certain sense, you know, I mean, it's a good question because he's saying, oh, if you look at the Gemara about the Shofar Gadol, it doesn't really make sense because that Tosfot is talking about something very different, but he's taking, he's drawing out a piece of that and then tying it back to the, to the issue of, of the Kohen Gadol. That's how I understand it. Um, but there were a couple of questions. Let me, let me, um, uh, let me go back. Um, so just, I'm going to read, I'm going to read one of them. So Zeb says, backing up for a second, what does the messianic world look like for Teitelbaum? How does it impact non-Jews? Well, I mean, Teitelbaum, sees the messianic world the way in which Chazal see it, right? There, it, it's, it's in a variety of ways. I mean, you know, the Messiah is going to come, the Beit HaMikdash is going to be built, the Jews are going to go back to the land of Israel, there's going to be peace on earth, all of the evil people are going to die. I mean, it's it's just, it's it's a kind of fairly straightforward rabbinic notion of what Messiah looks like. Now, there's two things here, though. One is, what does the world look like immediately before the Messiah comes? And what does the world then look like after the Messiah comes? And those are two very different things. In terms of what the world is going to look like before the Messiah comes and how the Messiah is going to come, there there's a wide variety of opinion. What the world is going to look like when the Messiah comes, according to Chazal, it's pretty straightforward. Now, you could say, you know, you can have a miraculous view or you can have a more naturalistic view, right? Maimonides says, you know, the only thing between the pre-Messianic world and the Messianic world is basically Jews are not going to be living under the sovereignty of others. That's a very naturalistic view. And then there are much more apocalyptic and miraculous, you know, positions. Um, I think that that Teitelbaum is more in the miraculous camp than he is in the more naturalistic camp. Um, so, so Michael, Mike, Mike asks that by assuming that Ka'ul is so close, isn't he making the same mistake 
as the Zionists rather that Rev Cook was making. Michael, could you tell could you tell me why that is? Could you unmute and Yeah, why is why is Gula so close? Why is Gula so close? Right? This is Rob Cook said, Oh, look, it's on the way. You can see it happening. Let's get on board. He's saying it's on the way, get off board. But why is it on the way for him? I think I mean that's a good question. I think um, it, a lot of it has to do with the destruction of European Jewry. Not, not. I mean, obviously the Holocaust, but even before, even going back to the pogroms of the 1880s, I think it really has to do with him reflecting on his own life experience. He sees the destruction of European Jewry, which had been vibrant and flourishing for over a thousand years, that that very quick and precipitous destruction was for him um, the beginning of the end time. I think that that's, I thought that's what I thought that's what was being caused by Zionism. And if so, they are bringing the Gula closer somehow. No, I think I think you would say it this way. Um, I think that Zionism comes in and, and this actually this actually relates to this to this passage that we're doing. I think okay. that the the destruction of the destruction of European Jewry is not itself the product of Zionism, because that was actually happening before Zionism. I think what Zionism is for him is the last ditch effort of the forces of evil to prevent the 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 end to prevent the Messiah from coming that the, the process that already began before. Right? I think that's how he sees it. Now, in a certain sense, you're right in terms of Cook, because Cook is also seeing, Cook is seeing Zionism as the messianic mo moment that was created, the conditions of which were created by the collapse of European Jewry. Again, before the Shoah, back into the 19th century. So in a certain sense, you're right that both of them see the world of, of European Jewry that they came from at the crumbling of that society as um, a, a, the beginning of the end time. Cook is seeing Zionism as the very thing that's pushing it forward. Teitelbaum sees Zionism as a satanic manifestation that's actually holding it back. Is that's that because the, these various diasporas have messianic goals that have to be fulfilled. I mean, it shouldn't be short-circuited. There's a reason why we had to be in Europe, and there's a reason why we had to now be in the Anglo-Saxon world. And those uh, those diasporas have to fulfill their potential. Or do yes, 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 for sure, for sure. You know, it, it, you know, it's very interesting. He talks about in another place. I have a, a, a kind of an essay about this that I published in Tabit called the, ne the Necessity of Exile, where I, I use some of his material, where he basically says, oh, no, no, the Jews had to be in exile. They had to be in the diaspora. Being in the diaspora was part of the messianic project because they had to basically spread. They had to spread Kedusha to the rest of the world. Now, not by going out in an expansive way, the way you see in Chabad. I mean, in that essay, I kind of compare Chabad and, yeah. and Teitelbaum, 
right? I mean, Schneerson and Teitelbaum. But they both thought that the diaspora itself was necessary, right? It wasn't a punishment for sin. It was a necessary part of what God had decreed for the Jews to go out and to spread the truth to the world and to prepare the world ultimately for the Messianic age. So for Teitelbaum and for Schneerson, leaving the exile too soon is dangerous for the messianic project because it doesn't allow the preparations for the it doesn't allow the jews to properly prepare the world for the messiah i mean schneerson says this almost explicitly titlebaum in titlebaum's it's more a little bit more more um implicit but titlebaum and schneerson both believe that being in the diaspora is a necessary requirement for for, for the messianic era, right? It's not, it, they don't see it as simply a punishment for sin. They see it as, 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 as a necessary opportunity and part of the project. I wanna to get to Sam's question. It's striking that he feels the greatest play of, this, of Satan in the, in, in the pre-redemptive era, I, I, I assume you meant, is the decoy of the Medina and not the terror of the Shorah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's it, because in a way, I mean, it's a good point because in a way, um, the whole point of the whole point of Satan in Teitelbaum's reading is to provide a false notion of the good. And, you know, the language that I use in kind of the work I'm doing here is it's a kind of Jewish antichrist. It looks like it's the Messiah, right? It smells like it's the Messiah. It seems to have all of the conditions of the Messiah. And then it turns out to be the opposite of the Messiah. That's what you have in the book of Daniel. Then that's what you have in the antichrist in medieval Christianity. And basically that is the, the, that is the Nisayon, the great Nisayon, that the Israelites uh, have to um, resist. Now, in a sense, this goes back to Genesis 3. It goes back to the serpent in the Garden of Eden, right? What did the serpent say to Adam and Chava? Well, yo, your eyes will be open. You'll be all-knowing, right? It all seemed very good. That's the whole, that, you know, that's the whole way for Teitelbaum in the world that he lives in. That's the way evil functions. Yes, that's the essay. Thanks, Brian. Yeah. Um, so he says, so, so, uh, I didn't get the, I didn't get, I'm sorry. I'm going to scroll up for one second. Uh, why does Teitelbaum think he's living in a messianic period? Well, first of all, I mean, let's face it. If you go through many different, you know, Jewish thinkers throughout history, many of them thought they were living in the messianic period. I mean, there are so many messianic calculations that go on. Abarbanel, after Gerush Sfarad wrote this book, Yeshuat Meshicho, that we're living in the Messianic period. You know, Lurianic Kabbalists thought they were living in the Messianic period. The Baal Shem Tov thought he was living. I mean, that's just kind of standard fare. It seems like Jews always think they're living in the Messianic period. So I don't think the title bomb is, 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 is particular here. But certainly post-Shoah, remember this is written in the 1950s. Certainly post-Shoah, there was a very strong feeling that the Shoah itself was some kind of seismic change that was not like anything else in, 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 in the history of, of Jewish civilization. So the Messianism post-Shoah is, is really actually quite rampant in a, lot of, in a lot of circles, certainly not only him. 
And uh, so vibrant messy, so vibrant anti-Semitism is a sign of the Messiah. What are the proof points for that? Well, I mean, you know, the wars of Gog and Magog in the book of Daniel, the idea that, you know, everybody's going to turn against the Jews, the idea that the world is going to come to the precipice of destruction. I mean, these are these are things that really are, are you know, they're bubbling in rabbinic literature. You don't have to look very far to be able to pick up on them and then, you know, put things together and use them. So, you know, he could show, the Lubavitcher Rebbe said that the, the first Gulf War was the sign of the coming of the Mashiach. These, there's nothing, there's nothing very unique about Teitelbaum in this sense, and I don't think that, that, um, that, um, you know, that that part of what he's saying, he's very much within his milieu. Um, so, I want to go a little bit further. For, where are we with time? Ah, oh, we're almost out of time. Okay. Uh, any other questions? I don't want to. I don't want to start this next thing on Eicha Rabbah, because it's, it's, another, it's another interesting way in which he articulates that the true messianic act is the act of waiting. And I think that's actually kind of, in a way, more than the idea of, oh, the three oaths and the abrogation of the three oaths and whether the three oaths are halachic or whether they're not halachic. He's making a different kind of claim. And he's saying that the true messianic act is the act of waiting. And dafka, it's the act of waiting when it appears like, it appears, not like, that it appears as if the act of waiting is itself insane. That becomes the big nisayon for him. And I think he's, he's, he acknowledges the difficulty in resisting Zionism is because Zionism makes utter sense, especially post-Shoah. It makes perfect sense. He totally gets that. And he totally understands the trauma and the desire and the need for political sovereignty and for safety and for refuge and all of those things. But the way he interprets that is the opposite of Rev Cook interprets it. Rev Cook interprets it as this is the moment to embrace. Oh, it's coming through the secular Jews. Oh, I'm going to give you a dialectical metaphysical reason about how that's possible. Right. Um, Somebody just sent me a kuntras that he wrote in Israel, trying to prove from rabbinic and, and, and medieval sources that the idea that the, he's a Lubavitcher, as you'll tell in a moment, the idea that the Messiah can come from the dead person is not actually a, a, you know, antithetical to the tradition. Right. So you think that it is, but I'm going to show you by reading the sources that it's not. So I think that what Teitelbaum is actually doing is is basically making a, in, in a certain sense, I, I just want to I want to end with this, and then we'll come back next week. I think that that there is a way in which whether if Cook is right or whether Teitelbaum is right, there is a level of like suffake, like we don't know, right? We're living in the middle of a story, right? He has a particular vision of how that story ends. Cook has a particular vision of how that story ends. They both acknowledge that the Jews are in a uniquely difficult position, having just suffered genocide. And 
Teitelbaum understands that his position is a difficult one to, to grasp, but he's basically saying from the sources as I read them, this is the big test, right? So for Cook, the test is that the big test for Cook is that the, the, the Frum Jews have to give up on the, on the belief that Messiah is only going to come through Torah and mitzvot. That's the big test for, 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 his, for his community. That's the big test. For Teitelbaum's community, uh, commu the big test is resisting that which seems the most reasonable and the most popular, right? He says, Bakola Olam. It's not just the Jews are accepting it, the entire world is accepting it. So they're both kind of, you know, in a certain sense, it's very funny because, you know, people say to me, people say to me when, 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 I, when I tell them that I'm, you know, we're learning by Yom Moshe, they say, well, I hope you're learning the other side too, right? And, and I say, wait a second, if, if, if I was learning Rev Cook, you wouldn't say, oh, I hope you're going to learn by Yom Moshe too, right? No one would say that. But in a certain sense, you know, in a certain sense, you really have to learn both of them together, right? Because they're really, in a certain way, engaging in very similar ideas and coming up with very different interpretations, drawing from the sources. Anyway, it's 8.33, so I owe you all three minutes. Um, thank you for coming and, uh, and, and spending the time, and I hope you'll come next week. And we'll talk about this very interesting Midrash and Eicha Rabba.